Hello and welcome to Movie Go Round, the film podcast that rotates between different themes every week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is New to Two. Hello everybody, my name is Brett Stewart. Joining me for this week's New to Two, Nicole Davis, how are you? You know, I I left my lover off stage, and <laughs> I got all these these recording guys I got to deal with, and just yeah. <laughs> maybe I should just sit here and and talk about a movie with you two instead. There you go. There you go. Uh, David Luzader, how are you? Well, thanks. That's all I got. I'm I'm good. Hey, thanks. Happy to cool. be cool. All righty. <laughs> well. <laughs> These are all veiled references to this week's movie. It was a new to two, meaning it was my opportunity to pick something that neither Nicole nor David had ever seen before. This is a movie I was really excited to bring, and I probably could have, at least in my eyes, I could have brought it maybe in a future classic, but um, new to two worked out really well because it was a relatively new film. You guys just hadn't gotten around to it yet, which worked out really well. Before I announce this week's movie, though, let's go ahead and announce next week's movie so you can follow along if you would like to. Next week is Netflix Roulette. We spin the wheel and it spits something out either from Netflix or from Amazon Prime. And we got, what is it, 2015 animated film, I believe from China? Yes, Mm -hmm. from China, called Little Door Gods. 2016. I'm sorry. It came out January 1st, 2016. Uh, This actually looks really cool. So we'll definitely check that out for next week, Little Door Gods, and that is on Netflix. So be sure to check that out. Hey, everyone. It's Nicole. Just a quick note here that this movie is referred to as The Guardian Brothers on Netflix. Uh, It is an hour and 25 minutes because it's a Weinstein Company release, which means they lopped uh, almost 20 minutes out of the original to repackage it, put American and British actors in it, and then slap it into Netflix. Uh, You can find the original if you go to YouTube and look up Little Door Gods 2017. There's an HD version with Chinese audio and English subtitles. And uh, I would recommend that one because it makes a lot more sense. But if you would prefer shorter and dubbed, then, you know, by all means, like I said, Guardian Brothers is on Netflix. So that's up to you. Just wanted to let you know you've got that option. But in the meantime, this week was a Netflix original film, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. It came out last year in 2020 in December. Tensions rise when trailblazing blues singer Ma Rainey and her band gather at a recording studio in Chicago in 1927. The reason I picked this film, short and sweet, it's very similar to the reason I picked Fences. I I am a diehard August Wilson fan. I think he's one of the best writers of the last 100 years, and I I think his plays beautifully capture you know, at least what I imagine it might be like to be, you know, a person of color living in each decade that he captures in. I think he he writes them so well that for someone who has not had that life experience, like any of us, you know, big disclaimer, three white people talking about August Wilson movie slash play. um, You know, we have not had the life experiences that many people of color in the country have. I just think he is the, you know, the poet laureate for bringing that to the, the page and then later to the screen. And he was involved in a lot of the early you know, film creations of his plays. He wanted these to be movies. Uh, So this film 
was part of that 10 film series that Denzel signed a deal with HBO to make, um, Fences being the first one. Uh, a bunch of things got moved around. It got moved to Netflix. I, I, I don't know if Denzel's like an executive producer or something on this, but he didn't direct it this time. It's directed by a different man. And yeah, I, I would also say that this is one of my favorite plays of August Wilson's because Spoiler alert for longtime listeners, I really like Chicago blues music. So what? this play no. kind of fires. I know. This this play kind of fires on all cylinders for me in the right way. So Ma, Ma Rain's Black Bottom, you guys have not seen it yet. Uh why? <laughs> I mean, how there's so much to see, man. Sure, sure. Yeah. There's a lot of content and you know, pandemic and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh <laughs> of course, you know, the, the elephant in the room is that it's Chadwick Boseman's final performance that, you know, the, the ending of the film is dedicated to him because he passed three months before, four months before it came out. So uh, we'll talk about him at great length here. But right off the bat, uh, we have a bunch of fantastic discussion topics. So the only way we're going to get through them is if I just start diving into them. I do want to talk about kind of just that like transition to the to the screen that we've always talked about with these and we talked about with Fences. Uh, you know, this was directed by a playwright this time around. It was not directed by Denzel. So it feels to me even more play in the sense of, like it, it really feels like a play. Like we're, we're bordering into Glengarry territory of like, oh, we're just watching a play. And I'm okay with that. But I was curious how you guys felt that translated to the screen. Yeah, I'll definitely agree that it felt more like a play, perhaps even than Fences did, because I forgot this was based on a play um, until maybe about like uh, 10, 15 minutes in. It's when all the the band is first in like the band room and they're supposed to be like rehearsing and like the conversation they're having. I'm like, the pacing of this is so odd for like for a movie or I was just thinking the pacing was odd, but it's like, oh, right, it's a play. Um, and it, it feels so much the way they're having their back and forth. It feels so much like a play. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, this absolutely, I'm, I'm going to say right off the bat, I don't think it succeeds in its, as a, as a film, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's like a filmed play because the vast majority of it takes place in the one location in the recording studio and the, the scene transitions are sometimes so awkward. Mm-hmm. They're the kind of transitions that happen when you're watching a play and there's somebody having a, a monologue or a scene on the left-hand side of the stage and then the lights go out and then a spotlight goes on on the right side of the mm-hmm. stage and somebody has an internal monologue at you. Yeah. And that's how this feels yeah he did not do the transitions very well at all i didn't think yeah everyone is saying in in a way that plays to everyone's saying exactly what they're thinking like they're having these like deep conversations that like you wouldn't expect people to just be hanging out to maybe have but they would totally in a play but i'll give it to to the the director here and i don't i don't have their name um pulled up george c wolf George C. Wolf. I will say, uh, George C. Wolf. I thought did do one scene very well for being a uh, a play director. It was the scene when they were trying to do all the takes of of the song, um, but they keep you know messing up because the uh, the boy's stuttering so much. Um, boy, <laughs> saying the word like the boy when I'm like in a movie like this when it's dealing with the things that it's dealing with makes me feel 
a little skeevy. Uh, Sylvester, Sylvester is the is the character's name, right? Um, but he like keeps messing it up, and so like it's a it's a pretty well done montage of cutting through like the different takes that keep messing up for, you know, for the different reasons. And, you know, there's the scene with the guys or the, the shot where the guys like take, and but it cuts off. Cause like, you just kind of get the sense of like, they're doing this again and again, and they keep throwing the records into the bin. I also don't really know much about like record recording. So that was pretty cool to see like when yeah. they got in like the, the close up shots of how all of that worked. And I also like never think of like, Oh, if the recording messes up, you can't just like go back and record over that. You have to toss that whole album. Right. Nor is there, at least at this point in time in 1927, a a way to, you know, do overlaying tracks. You know, that was something you really didn't see in popularity until the Beatles, honestly. But like they couldn't go and say, all right, record Sylvester, say his line and do it a million times till he gets it right and then put the band in. Like it all had to be this perfect piece that just came together. and, And of course... His mic is not plugged in. But yeah, di- dialing back a sec, you know, George C. Wolf is, he's hes the one who won the Tony Award for directing uh, Angels in America. Very different kind of play. Uh, but, you know, he has a lot of weight in the, the theater scene. So, yeah, I agree with you guys. Like, the, the transitions are more abrupt. You know, what one thing Fences does really well, in my opinion, is it, it took some, and I'm thinking this is because Denzel was directing it um, as a someone who is both a stage actor and a screen actor. And let me also preface, we're probably going to talk about fences a lot because they're like, they're really, this is, they're all spiritually the same world in a way. So I'd recommend going and listen to our fences episode. I'll throw it in the show notes. But I think one thing he, he did really well was like, you saw these transitional scenes of like, the truck route that they take when they're picking up garbage and the outside of his work when he, you know, goes and gets his paycheck or he's not coming home on time. And like, you see these just little pieces of the world that flesh it out more where it still feels like a stage play, but they're doing a lot more to make that a little bit more of lively of a world. This movie, I think intentionally with Wolf's direction is very much to your guys point there are like three rooms in this movie. There is the the band room, the recording studio, the entrance to the studio, and the street outside. And that's it. Uh, and, and I think it works to its benefit and against it at certain times. I think you guys are right. I don't want to, you know, disrespect this man as a theater director. I'm sure he's a brilliant theater director. Angels mm-hmm. in America is a stunning theater production. But it's just translating theater to the screen is tricky you know and it takes a particular skill set and i think that's one that this director has not developed yet yeah and acting or not acting but um plays are the actor's medium and directing or movies are the director's medium wow i messed that up so bad plays (laughs) are the actor's medium movies are the director's medium so this is a guy that's coming from the world where it's all about the performances of the stage and yes there's like a lot of cool technical stuff you have to do with stages as well but it's really all about that emotion which he totally gets not necessarily hard to get with someone like viola davis in your movie (laughs) she's gonna bring it no matter what uh, but even like all of the kind of fringe characters, they, they bring a lot of emotion and you, you can just like feel kind of the, the realness. It feels play-y, as you said, but in that way that like makes plays so engaging. Like the emotion is definitely heightened, but they're still good performances. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's two parts of, of the kind of critical 
praise of this film. I think part of it, and there's just no way to get around it, is that you're going to have the effect on this film of knowing this is Chadwick Boseman's last performance. And that is going to rose tint any critic. That's just a reality. I think he's actually exceptional in it. But I think the other part of it is that I I think these movies, and we, we kind of came away from Fences in a similar place where like, if you are the kind of person like me, where like you read these plays in you know college or high school or something like that, and you've always loved them, maybe you've seen them performed. These are definitely love letters to the plays. Like they they don't deviate very much. The performances, like you said, are these grandiose uh, philosophizing on life, you know, type August Wilsoniness that he loves to do. Right, like the people in the band room. Sure, they're just going to start pulling out knives and talking about you know their past traumas and everything that's ever happened to them in their lives and be incredibly poetic about it. That's the way the man wrote. <laughs> and 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 that was what was great about him. So I, I do think on the flip side, this does capture so much of what is good about his writing. Yeah. And I, I think that really showed itself in the scene. Uh, I mean, the, the most fences scene is definitely the like, it's Chadwick Boseman pulling the knife and let's yell at God and yell about God. But I also yeah. felt it a lot too of, I think it was Toledo, who was the one who was like complaining about like everyone's just trying to have a good time. And what does that mean to have a good yes. time? Is that, is that, yeah, that's is Toledo, that Toledo, the piano player? Yeah. That mm-hmm. had a very fences like feeling to me. Yeah, totally. I'm I'm glad you brought that up because I put that in our discussion topic where he's he has this interesting monologue that's much more critical of of the black community around him versus everyone else where you know he's saying like, "Oh, you guys just want to have a good time and your forefathers just wanted to have a good time and like that's great, but life is not all about having a good time and you have to think about what kind of world are we leaving, you know, for our kids and our grandkids and and you know, he makes these these interesting points where he says like, you know, and then they say, "All right, well, you do you." And he says, "I can't fix this by myself. I can't as one black man, I cannot fix all the problems we face, and that's why we can't just be focusing on having a good time because each one of us needs to put our foot forward and work toward progress and work toward change. It's, it's an interesting monologue. I, I don't know where I land on it, but I love Toledo as a character. I mean, he's he's not wrong, but in mm-hmm. I think in the sense of any community that is discriminated against, it is very difficult for one person to effect change. You know, it's it's yeah. hard for one disability activist to change everything about access for disabled people. It is very difficult for one gay person to push gay rights bills through Congress. It requires community. It requires group effort. And it requires, you know, coming to some kind of consensus about where you want to go and what you want to try to achieve. And that is, it's very difficult to get. Yeah. Do you think, and and this is a, a deeply philosophical question we might not be able to get to the root of. Hooray! Um, <laughs> do you think that August Wilson, writing this play in 1984, or it was released in 84, writing it in the early 80s, um, do you think having the foresight of knowing what happens the 60s and in the late 50s, and understanding, you know, uh, the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King, like, and like that, that a change was going to come at some point, and that was... 30 years removed from what these people are experiencing in this timeline in 1927. Do you think that helps him write dialogue like that? I, I, 
I don't know. I just I, I think that's an interesting point of view because he, he he can't at the end of the day put himself in the position of someone in 1927. Like he knows that at least some change is going to come. I mean that's a oh, that's a that's, really tough question. I know <laughs> yeah, there's no right answer unless you ask the man. But yeah, but I I, I don't know. It just it seems to me like August Wilson loves to write or loved to write in a way that was it, it's optimistic a lot of the time. And I wonder if it would be as optimistic if you didn't know that a change was going to come. I don't know. I, there's yes and no. And I mean, back in the, back in the eighties, it was different at least for black people. And it's different for black people. Now I'm not going to assert that it's better. <laughs> Maybe some things are better. Some things aren't, some things are worse, but it's, different in some ways you know they're being oppressed in excitingly new and different ways um which you know i don't mean i don't mean to be really flip i mean but i sometimes you have to or you will go mad with the horribleness of it all um yeah but i think anytime you write any period piece it's going to be pardon the expression, it's going to be colored by what you know um, happens in between then and now. Right, right. yeah. We're viewing, we're viewing the past through the lens of today. Um, and, and even, like, as much as you can put yourself into, like, those moments, like, you still know what's, like, what's coming in, in a sense. This is a, a movie, I, I think, like, Nicole and, and Brett, you probably feel the same way. Like, there are certain aspects of this where it's like, how do I talk about this as a white person um, where I just, I don't have any sort of authority as a way to really kind of like speak on it. And I also don't want to like speak out of turn or, or say anything that I don't mean or like might regret later, blah, 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 all that, um, all that out of the way to say like, it is very, it is very fascinating. And one thing I really do like about this movie and fences is to hear black people talking about being black, and I don't mean that in a like, uh, like in anthropological. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I, but I kind of right, feel like I'm, I'm right. so I'm studying to become a uh, a history teacher, and there's stuff that I have been like learning about recently, um, just really kind of going more in depth on some stuff that like again here Chadwick Boseman calls um, calls someone a, a sharecropper. And I was just like, I was just today doing some like reading on, on sharecropping and like really kind of digging into what that is. So I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Very interesting to hear that in, in a movie and to, but to like hear it in this context as well. So just like from somebody who is going to then be turning around and trying to teach history to, uh, to future generations, experiences like this and hearing things like this, like I'm hoping it will inform in positive ways ways that I can incorporate stuff like this into how I teach or I can encourage my students of like, Hey, I can't really talk on that topic, but you know, what might be really great. Here's, here's this movie that can get, I can look at it in a way that I can't. And I think, I think you're really circling right around the reason I love August Wilson, because, you know, I, I feel that what, what he did so well with each of these 10 plays was it's not just people of color talking about being black in America it's more nuanced than that because it is it is all centered around different themes in every play. You know, Fences is centered around broken family and sports and, and you know, dealing with a 
low-income household that uh, is constantly struggling. You know, this movie centers it around the blues, uh, similar to, you know, the piano lesson in a way. The piano lesson has, which I might, if you guys have never seen the piano lesson film that he directed, maybe I'll bring that someday, but because it's really interesting. But um, yeah, like the piano lesson is all about like this family coming to grips with their heritage through a piano, right? Like there's always that central object or theme in the middle, whether it's music or baseball or whatever it might be that, uh, that makes these stories so human and so relatable. And for someone like me that doesn't have the, that life experience as a black person in America, it can give me some context into what that might be like and allow me to, you know, explore having even further empathy and understanding for people that are not like me. And I think August Wilson did a great job with that. And, and that's why for me, his plays are just so, you know, longstanding. Uh, we got a bunch of other discussion topics here too. We'll de- we'll delve into a couple of them here. Ma isn't difficult just to be difficult. Uh, she's learned to play the game with white folk taking advantage of her, especially in the studio. Uh, this is one of the most vital portrayals of white producers who took advantage of black artists. Um, that's my discussion topic, obviously. Okay, those seem like two different topics, kind of. <laughs> kind of, but not really, because like because. To me, like she's being difficult because she wants them to know who is in charge. I am in charge until I sign these papers. You do not get to cross me or not listen to me or take advantage of my artistry or my ideas in any way, shape, or form because that is what you do. That is what is your prerogative to do. I am an asset to you, not a human. And that's why she's difficult. All they want is my voice. Well, I done learned that. And they're going to treat me the way I want to be treated, no matter how much it hurt them. They're back there right now calling me all kinds of names, calling me everything but a child of God. But they can't do nothing else because they ain't got what they wanted yet. Okay. I mean, I can see that that's a strategy that she's employing, but it also seems like at least the way she's portrayed in this film is that she's, she's like that all the time. Uh, oh no, she's, she's also, I think she's a diva. Yeah. She's a diva. Yeah. It shows her in her hotel, which is a, a hotel for black people. And, um, you know, she comes downstairs looking very grand and her female lover comes up to her and Ma very assertively takes her arm and everyone looks scandalized. Mm-hmm. Um, right. They don't do anything. You know, no one threatens no. to throw her out. No one says anything to her because they know who she is. But she's taking what would be kind of an aggressively, yeah, what you going to do about it sort of attitude yeah. as she goes out. And I'm not saying that that was a a wrong thing to do, but that, you know, she's, she's an assertive person. <laughs> There's also a scene towards the end where, cause she did not tell them that, Hey, Sylvester is going to do this. I'm going to bring Sylvester and he's going to be on the record. Uh, she just brings Sylvester there. You didn't see the rest. Now I'm going to show you the best. My Rainey's going to show you her black bottom. And then at the end of the day, she's like, well, now you need to pay him. And and they're like, well, we'll pay her out of like, we'll pay him out of your money because we didn't agree to have him here. And she like holds off until until they pay him. 
And I'm not saying that I side with the uh, low-key racist th- producers of of this place, but I, I, I did have a moment there where it's like, I mean, you didn't, they didn't know he was going to be there. You just like brought him and were like, by the way, you're paying him now. I mean, that, but that's part of the thing, I think, is like she she knows that the pennies that they're spending on her are turning into many, many more, right? Like when they sell these records and, and, the, and like these contracts, like they're, you know, she's playing hard to get with the contract at the end of the movie. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't explicitly tell you, but these contracts tended to be incredibly predatory against those black artists. She, I think she's got a, she has a unique personality where I think also she, ha- she is in a place of, of wealth that very, very, very few African-Americans can get to in this point in time in 1927. And she wants pe- white people to know about it. She's like, I am here. I, I am just as valid as you. I have just as much money as you, if not more. Like she's walking around Chicago in the summer wearing a fur coat. And that is not because it's comfy. It's because she wants to be seen wearing a fur coat. I just... I, I love Viola Davis's portrayal of this in every way, shape, or form. I, I'm hesitant to say that 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 she shouldn't have won an Oscar for it, but or that she should have won the Oscar for it because I, I I think the Oscar uh, didn't it go to the um, who did the I think it was Francis it, it was Francis McDormand yeah yeah okay I love you Francis McDormand but it's uh <laughs> she's really good she's really good I mean as long as we're yeah. talking about Ma as a character she just uh, embodied it it's Viola Davis. She's fantastic. Yeah, she's she, not gonna do poorly. Yeah, she sells. <laughs> no. She she sells. I mean, her being a diva, she sells it entirely. She's not like being overly dramatic in the way that like other people who portray kind of this diva character would. And I mean, she just has this kind of she just has this resting bitch face kind of the whole movie. <laughs> that Viola Davis sells so well. I would, I would believe that that's just like how she, like she's walking around looking all of the time. Like she embodies the character. Well, yeah, I mean, and she's got an advantage here in that she's wearing a face that says the truth, which is that I don't need to be here. I could go down South Mm -hmm. and go on my train tour and, live in luxury and have people screaming and clapping and cheering for me wherever I go. And I could make just as much money and I'm here doing this recording, uh, you know, maybe try to spread northward a little bit. And I'm doing you a favor mm-hmm. by being here. Yeah. And she's got that in her back pocket. She could leave anytime. And she and does repeats that to her manager over and over and over again. Yeah. Which, by the way, that manager, when the movie started, I was like, is that Tony Hale? The guy <laughs> looks kind of like Tony Hale. A little bit, yeah. I, I, know, I know him as the guy from Better Call Saul. He's, he has a big role in that. Let's talk about him, though, because he he's better a little bit mm. in the sense that he, a little bit, that he's at least, um, he's trying to get Ma what Ma wants, though he's not doing it out of any sort of allegiance to her, I think is made abundantly clear. He's doing it because she's a cash cow. But um, just this, the way they approach toward the end of the movie when they're all getting paid is, is really interesting to me because the, uh, the band explains, and we haven't really talked about them yet. We'll get to them, but like Cutler, the band leader 
is explaining like they can't give me a check like no bank in chicago is going to cash a check to a black man they're gonna think i stole this check and you know there's this constant fear of just not being paid appropriately or being paid in a currency that doesn't work for you or in a form that doesn't work for you it's wild to consider that these session musicians are being paid 25 dollars and she's being paid 200 and those are both very low numbers in contrast to what the record salesness will be that they all surely are not getting royalties from like mm-hmm. you know this was the era where uh and this all the way through all the way through like the mid-60s really until a lot of the British invasion stuff started putting us more of a spotlight on black artists, particularly in America. This was where you come in, you record a song for us, we pay you $10 and a bottle of Jack, and you leave, and you never see a royalty from that song ever. Yeah. And you know what? A white guy's going to record it at some point, and he's going to see royalties on it, and it's going to play on the actual radio. Yeah. Um, I, it was, it was uh, uh, Inside Llewellyn Davis. Um, I'm thinking of the yes, scene. That's a good. That's another going with this. Yeah, because I'm thinking of the scene because how much like uh, he got paid like what five hundred dollars for the session or something like that. Like he got paid some significant amount more. And I did like I, I pulled up a calculator here. You know they got paid twenty bucks, which is or twenty five bucks, which is like three hundred and fifty dollars today. Which like if someone gave me that for a day's worth of work, cool. But like to show the difference, even then of forty years later, uh, you know he's getting like a few hundred dollars for a day and they're getting pennies. And you're, you're right. They're getting paid like absolutely nothing. And those royalty deals were just so insanely predatory. It was just remarkable. The amount of black artists that came out of the twenties all the way through the sixties with just these horrific record deals where if they even were seeing royalties, it was it was nothing. It was absolutely nothing. And it was stipulated on immense amount of work on their behalf with a ton of records coming out. Um, and again, like that, that was the way the game until, you know, the stones started putting Howlin' Wolf on TV. And unfortunately that's what it required to an extent, but like, that's, that's what it was. So I, I just think this movie has a very interesting portrayal of that because, you know, Viola Davis makes a point in the movie as Ma, where she says, you know, they, they could bring me a Coke, a Coke is five cents. And I, and she probably requested it before, but no, she's as a commodity, get her in, get her out. It's not really about making her that comfortable. So I do appreciate how firm she is in that. She gets her Coke. Ma, listen, I'll call down to the deli and I'll get you a Coke, but let's get started, huh? Sylvester's standing there, ready to go. The band's all set up. Let's do this one song. Too cheap to buy me a Coca-Cola. I buy my own. Slow drag, Sylvester. Come on, baby. Get me three bottles of Coca-Cola, ice cold. Get y'all something, too. Keep the change. Yes, ma'am. Urban, get away from me. You can wait till I get my Coca-Cola. Ain't gonna kill you. Okay, Ma. Get your Coke. Gentlemen, the band room. Christ's sakes. Get your Coke. Good for Ma. Um, I feel like also now is probably a good point to mention that like Ma Rainey was a real person. Mm-hmm. I feel like some people didn't know that when this came out and Vi- Viola Davis looks just like her. No, <laughs> really? I, I think they got the makeup, the makeup to look pretty close. Cool. They got the makeup to look close, but Viola Davis does in her, her natural appearance does not look like Ma Rainey. Oh no, no, no. That's, that's not <laughs> what I'm saying. No, I just mean like once, once they caked on all the makeup because they did, like the, uh, the, you know, when the Oscars happened, they did at least win an Academy Award for hair and makeup. Uh, it was the first African American crew to win that ever, and her whole getup is such a massive undertaking. Like her wig was done 
hair by hair with horse hair. And then they just did an incredible amount of like really uncomfortable and long makeup on her to get her to look this way with the teeth and the makeup and everything. Uh, it really is remarkable. Yeah, those gold teeth were amazing. Mm-hmm. <sighs> those gold teeth. Yeah. Yeah, the original Ma was missing a couple more. <laughs> you know, she had, a, she had a toothy smile in the sense that there was like five or six missing throughout there. But yeah, she pulls it off pretty well. God, I can't imagine how uncomfortable she must have been. I mean, I think she put on like a little weight for this, but it's mostly a fat suit. And... With the weight of that and the heat of that and her being made up to look consistently sweaty for the entirety of the movie (laughs) had to be so uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I, and when I, when I said, you know, she was selling it so well that like resting bitch face, there was part of me too while watching it just like. God, being in all of that like makeup because it's that heavy makeup and and Nicole like said the fat suit like maybe Viola Davis was just channeling it. She was just like, <laughs> I feel miserable, and I'm gonna show it. <laughs> yes, um, Nicole, you did mention uh, you know Ma's kind of kind of girlfriend Dusty May, and kind of that we want to talk about the treatment of Ma's bisexuality in this movie, and you know how Dusty May is almost a character, but not quite. So, so close, so close. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's historically documented that Ma Rainey was bisexual. You know, she was married twice to men, but she had girlfriends, one of whom was reportedly Bessie Smith. But I don't know about this portrayal. It seems like the way that it's shot and the way that Dussie May kind of cozies up to Levy later it's you know I I ain't saying she's a gold digger you know but she's a gold digger. Oh, she uh, is. Oh, <laughs> but she ain't hanging with no broke levies. Yeah, right. Um. Yeah, I mean she's <laughs> you know she's willing to like rub Ma's feet and let Ma cuddle up to her and the way that shot it looks um, it makes it look almost predatory. You know, like Ma's come up behind her and is wrapping her. Yeah. In this embrace and like hanging over her shoulder and it looks vaguely menacing. It doesn't look cozy. It doesn't look loving. It doesn't even look that affectionate, at least on Dusty May's part. Dusty May is just like, yeah, all right, you know, this is what I got to do. <laughs> yeah. There's, yeah, there was also the, the scene too, that touched me of where she like, Dusty May goes up to the, the microphone. And it's just like messing around and Ma yells at her. Like she's like keeping her on a short, like, like, no, you're not, you're not performing. You're not dancing around. You're, you're just, you know, you're here for when I need you. And she does that to Sylvester as well. You know, he's sitting there poking the piano and she's like, get over here. Literally come sit at my feet. Yeah. You know, um, she how, definitely, how bad for Sylvester. I don't know if I'd want to be Ma's friend. Yeah. <laughs> So let's dive into some of our other discussion topics. We haven't talked about, you know, what I think are the true powerhouse performances of this movie, ultimately, which is the band. You know, you have this this band that that spends a lot of time rhapsodizing about life in the, you know, the dinky downstairs rehearsal room, the band room. And, uh, well, I guess we can start talking about Levy. You know, Levy, you know, is, of course, Chadwick Boseman's character. Um, He seems so certain that his bitterness will somehow protect him from being exploited. This is a discussion from Nicole. Yeah, I mean, it's... At the beginning of the movie, he comes off as just 
cocky. You know, he's right. this cocky young guy who's talented and he knows he's talented and mm-hmm. he's sure he's going to make it on his own with his own band at some point and at some point real soon. And he's writing songs for Mr. Sturdivant at the record label. And I don't quite get why, you know, he's sure he, he knows that white men are not to be trusted. And yet (laughs) it's like, he's so hopeful about his future as a musician that I don't know if he's ignoring any misgivings or if he's so sure of his talent because he sees Ma getting away with bossing around the, the record label guy and her white manager. But he tell you know, he tells this, this horrible story about his mother being gang raped um, when he was a child. And he's, you know, clearly it is still a searing Mm memory for him and it's still very fresh to him this is not this is not something that he's allowed to heal over this is something he keeps he keeps circling back to and poking at to keep it fresh maybe to keep himself on his toes you know mm-hmm. but i don't i i think i don't get how he lets this happen at the end where he lets mr sturdivant spirit his song away with him yeah i think there's a little bit too i think there's a little bit of what you're saying like there's that uh naivete of he thinks like he thinks i'm good enough that they'll give me what they're giving ma also the whole like selling them for five dollars reminded me of a john mulaney bit where (laughs) john mulaney has this whole thing of like i was young and and dumb and shiny like a motown singer you want to give me a whole five dollars for all my songs mr barry gordy (laughs) anyway uh, i think there's also a little bit uh, of him saying when he like, because he says very clear in the film, I know how to handle white people. I can say yes, sir, to whoever I please. What you got to do with it? I know how to handle white folks. I've been handling them for 32 years. Now you gonna tell me how to do it? Just cause I say yes, sir, don't mean I'm spooked up by him. I know what I'm doing. Let me handle it my way. Well, go on and handle it then. Tell me, you know, you're always messing with somebody. Always agitate somebody with that old philosophy bullshit you be talking. You stay out of my way about what I do and say. I'm my own person. Just let me alone. All right, all right, Levy, you right. I apologize. Ain't none of my business. You spooked up by the white man. <laughs> and I think what how that relates to this is like he thinks like if I give them what they think they want from me, if I give them, you know, the respect they want, if they view me as somebody who will do what they want, they'll give me what I want because they think they're in control. I think it is very much, you know, going back, it's it's part of that, like, he is trying to be Ma, but just isn't. Yeah, and, and he's right, because like the, the whole time, the entire band is telling him, there's this song called Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, the name of the play. And they're playing it, and there's just so much back and forth on whether or not to use his arrangement or Ma's preferred arrangement, which is much slower. Um, you know, he refers to it as, you know, like jug band music, and he wants to make it more hip and exciting and add a lot more of more of like a bluesy jazz influence into it to really make it pop. And they just, no one wants anything to do with that, except he thinks that that's what the record label wants because they tell them early on that's the case, but then they just take his music and record it with white people. We'll get to that. That's a really interesting ending to this movie. But, uh, 
I think you're right, Nicole. I don't know how he winds up there. I think I think David makes a good point. Maybe it is just that he he thinks he knows how to play this game better than he really does, you know? Yeah. And gosh, Levy as a character, you know, August Wilson is so often referred to as like the American Shakespeare and like my gosh, does he like get a little bit too Shakespeare-y with the way the Levy ends? You know, this literally ends in a Romeo and Juliet ask fiery inferno i suppose we can kind of you know walk toward there uh david you put in our docket Chekhov's knife which i think is a very fair way to put this yeah he brandishes a knife we talked about a little bit earlier he was swinging it at um cutler uh, Cutler. i was was just thinking i was just thinking coleman coleman domingo which is the actor's name um Mm -hmm. but but yeah he's he's swinging at him and for some reason my brain did not go like well that's gonna come back and then I get at the end, uh, he gets Toledo steps on his shoe. And that's after he's been told your dreams aren't coming true, kid. I'm going to steal your music and go record it with white people. And I'm uh, not, not so in so many words, but you know, that's what ends up happening. And he just has a breakdown and he, he stabs Toledo in like the kidney from behind killing him relatively quickly. And he's like the, the whole time he's like, no, 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 it's fine. It's, Toledo, you're fine. I'm going to walk you out of here. And then you're right. It does like break down. He's on the ground cradling him as he's, as he's dying and there's blood all like everywhere. It's very like Lady Macbeth, you know? Right. Yeah. He's stained with it now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, all those hopes of having that future are, you know, seemingly dashed uh, or certainly dashed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're right. You know, for, for listeners, unaware you know Chekhov's knife or you know Chekhov's gun if it's there you got to use it right otherwise why is it there um and he does end up using the knife uh Cutler as long as we're on him he is this subtle influence on so many of the events yeah he's the one that he tells the um Irving or I can't remember who he who he tells me tells him like yeah we can't have Sylvester do it because you know his voice is is just not gonna work and um, there's just, and I, I'm blanking, but there's other like times where he's just kind of like going around talking to you or like, when he's talking to Ma and he's like constantly trying to just kind of like talk Ma out of like, oh, you don't, don't, don't fire, don't fire him. Like, no, don't worry. We'll make it work out. It's all going to be fine. He's kind of like playing all sides a little bit, but then also like just disappears into the background. Like he's not, because when, when he's Ma's right hand man, right? He's got the ear. Right. When, when it comes down where they're like, well, somebody, you know, the band told us that Sylvester can't do it because of his stutter. He's not speaking up that it was him. He lets he lets other people take the blame for it. Yeah, and, and I mean, also put in our docket. You know, everyone is quick to blame Levy, but no one sells him out when he sleeps with Dussie. Um, that's also sleeps. <laughs> like, okay, like has, says hello to her, and five minutes later, they're you know screwing in the band room. <laughs> they were making. He was just asking her name, according to yeah, him. Yeah, he's just that's asking the, her name. Yeah. But like that, that's another one where like like. You know, he's 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 kind of digging his own just bald faced lie, <laughs> right? But he is digging his own grave, and and but uh, you know, to to the band's credit and Cutler included, they all know what happened, and they don't out him for it. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I don't think Ma would have taken very kindly to that. That's for sure. No, they, they probably just wanted to record the album and get out of there. I think that's why they didn't do it. Yeah, I think they were there hours longer than intended. <laughs> As, as long as we're kind of talking about the band, you know, each of the band members seems to kind of have their, their moment to rhapsodize about life. Again, like it's, it's how August Wilson wrote. And, and I love that about the way he wrote it. It's poetic and, and amazing. But I think the one that stuck with me the most, and, and it's pretty faithful from the 
play on over is when Toledo is kind of just, and this is one of those scenes I think you're talking about, Nicole, where the cuts are abrupt and they don't make any sense. Yeah, this was super awkward. Are you talking about the stew monologue? Yes. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. so it goes from him, all of them talking, to him at a piano doing the stew monologue, to then cuts back outside to Chicago. Like, that stew monologue was just floating in between these two things, right? Mm-hmm. And you're right. It totally is the the spotlight that is cast on the right side of the stage while he does the monologue while they move the stuff over on the left. But moving that aside, how it was executed, it really is a poignant monologue. You know, it's all about this this stew of... Nicole doesn't think so. <laughs> no? <laughs> I'm, 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 wait, I'm waiting to see where you go with this. <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, I mean, he, it's this monologue about this stew of humanity that that has created American culture, and about how he feels that you know that the blacks in America are just kind of the leftovers. I want to pull up the transcript because like, Nicole's I Nicole's d- giving me a weird yeah, look. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know what. <laughs> I I'm not sure what the monologue is saying indirectly. I mean, you like you could take it as a point where he says basically that. Black people won't get anywhere unless they first accept that they're the leftovers. And then from that point, Mm. they can work together to get wherever they want to go. Does that mean that people are supposed to just sort of accept their lot in life before they can change it? Or that you can't say, no, this isn't right, right from the get-go? What... uh, I, th- I don't think, quite understand what he's driving at. I think why maybe that might be a little bit more ambiguous is because that's kind of the sort of thing in this movie slash play. And also like, as we saw on fences, that's something that like that would start a conversation that there would be a lot of back and forth and sharing of opinions and clarifying of, of thoughts and, you know, diving deeper into, but you're right. It's just kind of presented as here it is. And it's never really like kind of followed up or or dug into any bit anymore. So you really do have to kind of wonder like, is it saying anything indirectly, or is he just saying, you know, just saying it out loud? Right, right. So so here's uh, a more in depth analysis of, of at least what he. There are people who major in August Wilson. I know one of them that has a PhD in August Wilson. And this is one of them writing for encyclopedia.com where it says, Wilson advocates and agitates for African-American social consciousness and black nationalistic self-determination through his art. Accordingly, Toledo instructs the band members as to their status as products of economics of slavery. These are the lessons that Wilson wants all African-Americans to understand. In his powerful, poetic, and humorous analogy of a stew, Toledo explains that African-Americans are historical leftovers. See, we's the leftovers. We, the colored man, is the leftovers. Now, what's the colored man going to do with himself? That's what we're waiting to find out. But first, we got to know we, the leftovers. For August Wilson... African-American advancement can only come after African-Americans recognize their leftover status, appreciate the legacies and lessons of slavery, and realize and express their own Africanness. Um, so I think that, if you were to be a scholar of Wilson, uh, might be what you derive out of that. I mean, that I think in order to get that context without being one, you'd have to at least read on like the ground on which I stand or something like that, which you don't get in this movie, right? Can I ask what I think is a relevant question, which is what color is this PhD person who is the <laughs> expert in August Wilson? It does not say. <laughs> it doesn't list it as a line underneath it. But I don't know. What is your thought? 
Well, as a white man, just kidding. <laughs> I don't. I don't think any of us have the right answer for this uh, analogy, but I, I think it's incredibly poetic, and I, I I understand what he might be getting at. I don't know. I felt more connection to the other two monologues. You know, slow drag the the upright bass bass player tells the story about a another successful musician who sold his soul to the devil and flat out mm, admitted right. it to everybody and was not only admitting that he sold his soul to the devil, but was trying to sign up other people to boot. <laughs> yeah. Get them to sign on. And is that, I mean, is that a metaphor? Is that, you know, if you sell yourself out to a certain segment of society, will you be prosperous if you give up certain goals or if you lead your life in this particular way that's uh, either sinful or, you know, away from what God wants. I don't know. But yeah, <laughs> if you lead your life in this particular way that this is the way that you're going to get ahead. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a lot of talk about God in this movie and, and religion and really, I think a really interesting and especially interesting considering, you know, the African-American community um, is very like, is typically portrayed as being like fairly religious. But we also saw this as well in, in Fences, where you had Denzel's character struggling with God a bit. And I, I think it's it's really interesting um, to see how in this one, you know, it, it Okay, I had like five thoughts try to come out of my brain at once. <laughs> uh, it, you know, in Denzel, in the Denzel case in Fences, he's monologuing a lot more, where this is happening so much more in conversation. And it comes to blows at one point, because you have Levy who's saying, like, if there's a God, why is why is he letting bad stuff happen? I'm paraphrasing a lot. <laughs> uh, it's, <laughs> it's much more personal than that for him, but that's basically like kind of like what he's saying. Or at least like if there is a God, he doesn't care about the black man. And that is just like from, again, I'm not going to dig too much into it, but it really is just like, okay, this is a really interesting dynamic to see play out and and to hear these different perspectives on it because it comes to blows because Cutler won't hear it. Cutler won't let him talk that way and starts to like, uh, starts to attack him and then the knife comes out and then it, it comes back to what you were saying earlier of Levy won't let himself heal. He won't deal with what happened to him as a child. And it's, it's very interesting to see play out. Let's talk about the problem of evil. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) This is a big, this is a big thing in atheist circles. Um, The problem of evil, you know, is primarily that if there's a God, why does God let evil things happen? And people say, well, you know, it's because people have, free will and it's well yes but why are people allowed to be evil to other people mm-hmm. you know why are they allowed to cause harm to people right. who are not doing evil and that's something that atheists like to get in arguments about and <laughs> this is something that that levy is trying to cope with and cutler is trying to stick with the god that gives him comfort you know, mm-hmm. he's yeah, yelling right. at Levy not to blaspheme. He's like, you can't talk about my God that way. And it's right. my God. It's very personal to him. This is something that he, that is precious to him. Mm-hmm. 
And we don't really know why, because we don't learn a lot about Cutler outside of what happens this day in the studio. Though I, I think... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Nicole. No, no, go ahead. I think the other part of that, to your point, is like, you don't know why this is so precious to him, but you can you can venture a guess that, you know, it's 1927, you are not far removed from American slavery. And when you look at gospel music and you look at Christianity within black communities through slavery and onward, it, it very much was this solace when there was nothing. And, and that's all you had. You didn't even have your family because families would be separated and all sorts of horrific things. And that was what they had. And that's how gospel was born. And I think if you would ask a modern day Christian or something like that, like the whole, the, the classic, you know, why do, why do bad things happen to good people question that Levy just can't wrap his head around. I mean, there's all these answers for it that you'll get every, and I'm, and I'm not degrading them at all. I just, I'm just saying like, it, it's, you know, God gives you what you can take and like, like whatever your answer is for that. I don't think that Cutler is equipped with that answer. I think he has not reasoned through that because God might be all that his family has had. Right. And that is that solace moving through difficult times. So you don't need to answer the questions of why do bad things happen to good people because it's the only thing you got. Whereas well, Levy, and it may also it may also just be a matter of faith for him. Right. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Whereas for for Levy, you know, he sees it as it's taken everything from him in a way. Right. Like that he had this faith in God and his mother had this faith in God for these bad things not to happen to them. And yet they did anyway. Mm -hmm. And oh my gosh, were we, is that a bomb to unravel? I don't, I don't know how to, on this podcast, sort that out, but you, but you, they, we're here to answer all your theological questions, <laughs> right? <laughs> theological hour, but my goodness, that's a different it, podcast. It, yeah. <laughs> right. But, but I think that it's well written in the sense that these two men are coming from very different places. And, and, and you know, as long as we're on that, Chadwick Boseman kind of has two defining monologues. He has the first one that Nicole, you mentioned earlier, where he talks about his mother, you know, being raped and attacked by these white men. And then his dad comes back and to, to get revenge on the white men and is able to down four of the eight of them before they take him and they lynch him. And it's just, just punch to the gut, horrific, like 10 minute long monologue that's beautifully performed. And then he also has the monologue at the very end where he, you know, he's saying, Hey God, you know, come and get me, come smite me if that's what you're going to do. Right. Because I don't think you believe, I don't believe in you. I don't care about what you think. I wish he got an Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> grumble, grumble, grumble. Uh, it's just, it's, it's a beautiful performance. I think we, this is where we should talk about Chadwick Boseman's performance. Yes. Let's in this movie. This is that section, which is to me. I mean, it doesn't rose tint it. It doesn't rose tint it because he passed away to me, but it gives it more power because of how he passed away. Right. Because he died of cancer and cancer and cancer treatment takes so much of your energy mm -hmm. out of you. And he is crackling with electricity and energy in this performance. He is giving it absolutely everything he's got. And that's very clear. You know, he is, you know, his cheekbones could cut things. He is painfully thin yeah. in this movie and they do yeah. their best to disguise it, but you can't hide the cheekbones. No. 
but I mean, he is, he is giving it everything. And Levy is a character that is full of life and vigor and determination and dreams. And, you know, he's projecting all of this, you know, Cutler, we know almost nothing about, but Levy, it's like, we know his past. We know his dreams. We know he's talented. We know he can write music as well as play beautifully. We know how he feels about Ma. We know that he likes to chase girls. We know, you know, how he feels about like older men in the black community and what he thinks is like their retrograde attitudes. And we learn all this about him because Chadwick Boseman is giving this tremendous performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, he's great. He's, he's Chadwick, but like, like, like Viola Davis, uh, it's, it's definitely sad in that sense of like, well, this is the last we're going to get out of actually, no, uh, there's one more Marvel thing coming out that he provided the voice for. So that that's still yet to come out, but it's his last like on screen performance. And, right. And, and yeah, it's, it's hard not to view that too of like, Oh, look at like how much potential there was. Like he didn't win the Oscar this time. He lost to Anthony Hopkins. That's like losing uh, to Michael Phelps in a swimming race, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's fair. There's, there's in, in the producer and his brother have said like, don't put so much stock into it because he wouldn't have, you know, all that sort of stuff. Sure. But he would have won an Oscar someday. Like there's, I, I don't have any doubt about that. He would have been nominated again. He would have been right up there and he would have been on that stage. Um, and it's, it's said that we're not going to get to see what that performance would have been. Yeah. Especially because when you take a look at him outside of his body of work, which was just incredible. I mean, this is the man who made black Panther, you know, happen like that, you know, that, that brought a colossal, uh, just unbelievable force into cinema of this, this black superhero. I, but on, on top of that, just hearing about how, how good of a person he, he, you know, apparently was, you know, yeah. in, in the wake of his death and, and just how cool of a guy he was. It just, it, it makes it even sadder, mm-hmm. but I think this is a great swan song. I, I think, I think it really is a powerful piece that, people will look at for many years. Um, I also wanted to call out that I think that, you know, when, whenever you're looking at an August Wilson play, because they were written from the, you know, the seventies onward, it's always interesting to look at who previously played these characters. How did Wilson cast them when he was alive? You know, because like very famous people that we know about were in these roles. You know, I was looking at the 2003 revival that August Wilson directed on Broadway of this play and a young Anthony Mackie played Sylvester, oh. <laughs> which is really cool. But what I found interesting is that you see a lot of directors in film that you can tell they have a thing for a specific actor or actress, and they're always casting them. That was very much the case with August Wilson and Charles S. Dutton, mm. uh, who appeared in pretty much every one of his plays. You know, you might know him from things like Alien Three, <laughs> but uh, he was he was also in you know Rock. Uh, yeah, right. Some of us are old enough to remember watching Rock on you know Fox. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, you know he he's in that that piano lesson film that I love and I will bring to the show at some point. But he actually played uh, Levy twice. Yeah, in the original 1984 cast, and then again in 2003. He was how August Wilson pictured this role. And if you've ever seen the man act, it makes sense why 
Bozeman has such an excellent portrayal of this character in terms of what August Wilson would want the character to be like. That vibrant energy you talked about, Nicole, is very much how Charles has done Nax. So I think I think August Wilson, if he were alive, he would be very, very pleased with all the with all the acting in this, but I think particularly Chadwick Bozeman, he would just be thrilled by. Um, which is a good a good note to go out on, unfortunately, but it's an amazing movie. I, I really do like it. The last thing I want to talk about very briefly, because I could talk about this for a while and get really boring, um, <laughs> is is you know I I do like the moment where Ma kind of sits down with Cutler and talks about how blues is a way of life, and and this is all contrasted to when they start playing and a couple minutes later, and the white producer I'm blanking on his name Irving or Irvin. Uh, it's just kind of like his head sticking out of the control booth and he's like clapping along out of sync and he's like, yay! <laughs> and the, you know, and it's just like, oh, white people clapping. White people can't clap for the life of them. And it's just like, it was so, it was such a perfect dichotomy. You know, she's saying like, the blues is the reason I get up in the morning. It is what gets me through my day. And I think people, white people in particular, are always so confused by the blues because it's called the blues. The blues is not sad. It can be sad. It is sad a lot of the time. The blues can also be happy and a million other emotions. And that is really the core of black blues in America. Blues, jazz, and gospel really are these, you know, three very distinct American genres that grew up in the black community. And they have so much more to them than what some people think. And blues is one of those things where she just has a couple great lines in there where she talks about how much it means to her and how it is every part of her life. And it's the way to get through. White folk don't understand about the blues. Their hair come out, but they don't know how it got there. They don't understand that that's life's way of talking. You don't sing to feel better. You sing because that's the way of understanding life. The blues help you get out of bed in the morning. You get up knowing you ain't alone. And then that's contrasted by the white guy in the background just kind of clapping along giddily because he's making money and it sounds hip. And it's just like, he doesn't get it. You know, he doesn't get it. So I really did like that part of the movie. Yeah, no, I agree. I like how she describes it as, as I think she says it's not just about getting your, and I'm paraphrasing here because I can't remember the exact line. It's It's not about just getting your sadness out, but it's just a way of like, describing life it's a way of kind of wrapping your head around life it's a way of expressing yourself in life when you can't do it any other way right exactly uh well i will also say just as a plug here at the end that if you're curious what i'm talking about when it comes to white people clapping uh Another person who I badly, badly want them to make a movie on is Sister Rosetta Tharp. She is like one of my all-time favorites. Look her up. She'll blow your freaking mind. This is a woman who in the 1950s and early 60s, before Chuck Berry was going out there in front of audiences playing a Gibson SG, that's the guitar you might know from like ACDC, just rocking it, absolutely rocking it. This big black woman just coming out of nowhere playing this Gibson SG. It's unbelievable. You Like young Chuck Berry was listening to that. But there's this famous clip you can find on YouTube really easily where- This is your like, cousin, Marvin Berry. Yeah, <laughs> uh, he had to, yeah. Uh, and um, 
there's this clip on YouTube where like she's playing in front of a train station and there's a group, there's an audience across the tracks from her, which is um, all white kids. And <laughs> she's like playing and jamming and all of them are just like giddy and just like clapping like they're little, just like squares, just pushing their hands together. and It's completely out of beat. And like, that was what was hip and cool. And they just are not at all on beat with her. And like, that's totally how the producer comes off in this movie. Like that is a very accurate portrayal of white people trying to understand black music. Um, well, I mean, he's just sort of the, the <sighs> he's the pencil pusher collecting the check. Yeah. He's the, the epitome of, of exploitation, you know, of yes. watching this movie and everybody's telling their stories, you know, like Cutler gets halfway through a story about Reverend Green getting stopped on the railroad tracks and this crowd of white people making him dance. And we never find out what happened, how he got out of it or if he got out of it or, you know, but just like that and the exploitation and the, you know, dealing with the cop outside, you know, it just, it reminded me very powerfully of a, a line from the color purple, um, which is very true, which is white folks is a miracle of affliction. Like <laughs> white folks, we're, we're really good. You know, collectively we are really good at making black people's lives miserable in new and interesting ways. And you know, it's just, and this guy is one of them. And it's just, you know, every time that scene, it's, yeah, <laughs> that scene hits different, doesn't it? Like in the wake of everything we're seeing right now and Derek Chauvin and all those things, that scene hits different. Yeah. It, it, to yeah, me. Where he's just yeah. quietly bribed um, to move along and not make a big deal out of it and not drag Ma into court and tie her up all day in jail or what have you because number one they didn't believe that a black woman could own a car yeah that was um awesome. that's number one thing they're like this you know that's not her car she's like this is my car <laughs> but number two if there's a traffic accident between a white motorist and a black motorist they're gonna blame the black motorist you know uh-huh. especially in 1927 right. so i don't know I don't, I don't know where i was going with that I just <laughs> Yeah, no, and, and, that, and that's actually why I would have liked to have seen more scenes like that. Like, I think that's what I'm talking about with like fences and the garbage truck route and like all the things where like you can take dialogue from the play, and Denzel did that a lot and put it in slightly different settings in order to do more world building. And like that was a little bit of it right there. And uh, unfortunately, this, this just doesn't do quite enough of it for me, which makes it. I, I don't love this quite as much as I love Fences, but I, it's a great film. Final thoughts, guys, as we close down Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. First time seeing it. What did you think? Great performances, uh, powerhouses of performances. Absolutely worth watching uh, for that alone. 
yeah, I mean, it's an hour and a half, you know, you're not like, if what we're talking about here, you're like, uh, I'm not quite sure. Like, it's not a super long movie. And I'm not saying that in a sense of like, well, just check it out. Cause it's not super long. Like it's, it's a good watch. It's, if you want to see some really great, uh, acting, it's worth watching. I agree with David. It was, it was absolute powerhouse performances. I was never bored. You know, there are many places where it's not very excitingly filmed, but the performances make it not matter, you know, and it's, they're fantastic. And I just also wanted to throw in how funny it was that we all had like basically the same thought at the end of the movie where they show uh, the record producer recording Levy's song with a white orchestra and a white lead singer. And we all thought of Pat Boone. (laughs) Don't even get me started on Pat Boone recording like Muddy Waters songs. I want to claw my eyes out. No offense to any Pat Boone fans out there. My favorite part is that the person it's based on is Paul Whitman, uh, but it's, or I'm assuming it's Whitman, but it's spelled W-H-I-T-E-M-A-N. Paul, <laughs> white man. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. man. If, if ever there was a man who could surgically remove any soul out of a song. I mean, like, okay. Short diversion here. <laughs> there is no way in hell Pat Boone knew what Tutti Frutti was about. <laughs> <laughs> and, and him singing that song doesn't work. Yeah. If you want to know why, go look up what Tutti Frutti is about. Yeah, no, white people <laughs> recorded songs that were originated by black artists all the time, and they took all the sex out of them. You know, there's a <laughs> lot of sexuality in those songs, and it was just... I'm, I'm clutching uh, my pearls. ...drained out of them. I know. And, and just sort of papered over and, and whitewashed over, if you will. So, it's just... Uh, <laughs> That's a whole. We're already running way yeah. over. It's, <laughs> we are. It's a good movie. It's, wor- it's oh worthwhile. It's absolutely worth watching just for Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman. But I yeah. mean, the other supporting players are also excellent. Coleman Domingo. Coleman Domingo. So good. <laughs> mm-hmm. So go for it. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's go around the table real quick where we can find everyone online. David, what about you? Hit me one more time is my other podcast and Davlus, D-A-V-L-U-Z, Twitter, Instagram. Find me there. Very good. And you, Nicole? I take care of our Facebook page at facebook.com slash moviegoaroundpodcast. We post whenever we have new episodes and when we have you did this to us polls and when people post questions, which is extremely rare. So, you know, you could do, <laughs> do that it. or you could contact us through our other social channels, which Brett knows off the top of his head. <laughs> yes, they are social.mgrpodcast.com. You can find all of them there as well as links to all of us. Be sure the email show. Hi, H-I at mgrpodcast.com. A reminder next week is going to be Little Door Gods. And if I'm not mistaken, looking it up right here, because this is good podcasting, <laughs> uh, the U.S. version of it does have a different name, The Guardian Brothers. So if you happen to wander across that on Netflix, because I believe that's what it's called on Netflix, there you go. So Little Door Gods, check it out for next week. That'll do it for myself. David and Nicole. We'll see you then. 